HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Need some fundraising for your food tech startup? If you do, this episode of Tech Bites is for you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Well, hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. Welcome to episode 55 of Tech Bytes, the weekly radio show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And that technology is not the kitchen cooking kind. We do not talk about calcium alginates or immersion circulators. That type of Food Tech is the domain of a guy by the name of Dave Arnold, and he hosts a really fun, slightly rambunctious call-in show called Cooking Issues, which is really a lot of fun if you're into that kind of thing. Check out the website for the listings and the phone number and get in on that. He's quite interactive and quite a lot of fun. Very knowledgeable also. The kind of tech we talk about on Tech Bytes is digital, web, app, all that kind of stuff, sort of the new 21st century tech. And to that point, we typically start every episode of Tech Bytes talking about apps. I call it the appetizer, which is kind of clever play on words. Um, it looks great in print, but you kind of can't see print on the radio. So we typically go around the room and we talk to everybody about what their favorite apps are, new discoveries. And we also get to meet everyone who is in the studio and in the booth. So first up is David. I'm not going, David, will you please say your last name? I still haven't got the hang of it. He's our new engineer and new Heritage Radio studio manager. Hello, it's Tatashore. Tatashore. Or Tatascure, I guess would be the original pronunciation. And what, what's the origin of the original pronunciation? It is Italian. Excellent. From the boot or the island? Uh, from the boot. From uh, Abruzzi. Very nice. Very nice. So, David, do you have an app that you like this week? Um, you know, I got another just kind of boring utilitarian app to talk about. Um, Utility can be very helpful. Yeah, and that's that's kind of like pretty much the only thing I use my phone for. I don't have any games. I don't have anything like really fun on there. It's all just... You must have something fun. Getting stuff done. Um, I'll have to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to think about fun. Um, But this app is, it's called Vagaro. And it's basically how I make an appointment with my barber. That's pretty much it. How do you spell Vagaro? (laughs) V-A-G-A-R-O. Now, is it an app to make appointments just with your barber no, or I is believe it a, like can... multiple barber shop app? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all different. And I think all different kinds of businesses too, not just barber shops. Like 
uh, I think I think mostly in the in the style industry, if I'm not mistaken. Style personal services, yes, like in, in salon, the, spa, barber, yeah. haircut type stuff. Exactly. Um, I only use it for this very one specific purpose, but uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, it, uh, I got to go see my man Steve from Uzbekistan uh, every couple of weeks, and this is how I uh, keep it all keep it all straight. Okay, interesting. I've never heard of that app. Spell it again. V as in Victor, A G A R O. Okay, and is that Android or Apple? Uh, it's definitely Android for me. I'm not sure if it exists on Apple. Because you just ignore the whole Apple universe. I just, I do not care. <laughs> I mean, I care, but you know, not Apple. a lot. All right. Well, that's pretty useful and interesting, and one we've never heard of. We like that, and we like personal services, and we encourage regular um, personal stylish grooming. <laughs> we appreciate that a great deal. Especially even on though, the radio, right? Even though we're on the radio, what, what <laughs> listeners don't know is that the studio is very, very close quarters and you get really close to people. So mm-hmm. you notice things like personal grooming. Totally. Also back there in the booth, we have someone new for this season. We have our new Declan, who is our new intern. Mm-hmm. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. When did you start interning here? Uh, like a month ago, a month and a half. You're a high school intern, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Very exciting. And Mm -hmm. you are hoping to study something music production in college? Uh, yeah. I I wanted to do it more like on the side. I wanted to do film in college, but uh, music production is starting to look like something I want to do more, so. Exciting. Fun. How long are you here for? Uh, till July, about, until I graduate. Very nice. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so do you have an app for us that you like or just discovered? Yeah, I saw an ad for an app, and I did a little bit more research. It's called Happen, spelled H-A-P-P-N, and it's basically an app. It's a dating app that allows you to contact people you walked past on the street, like maybe you made like intense eye contact with them, or you just thought they looked like dope, so... And you can, and you can't find them again. So this this app allows you to find them and send them messages if they have their app and their location services are turned on. This is amazing. Yeah. This is an amazing app. So you need to have the app on your phone, yeah. and the other person that you make the intense eye contact with has to have the app on their phone also. Yeah, and then. If the app is on your phone, is it just on like a honing beacon and, yeah, and then it just like, like locks up with the people who have the app in your vicinity? Yeah, you know how like Apple has the location services where it's like that little little compass arrow thing and if you've got it turned on it can tell you where restaurants are near you and stuff like that. Like it's a bit it's a bit stocky but like it's kinda useful. So if they have theirs on, you have yours on, they have the app, you have the app and you happen to make awkward or intense eye contact with them and feel like continuing the conversation you'll find them on the app and you can send them a message have you used it yet no i haven't i should have you have you not seen anybody that you've made awkward or intense eye contact with i mean i haven't downloaded the app (gasps) you haven't downloaded the app yet i should where did you see the advertisement on the uh subway on the subway so it's like just a thing up there yeah yeah up there's an ad because I feel like that's where it would happen the most is on the subway. Yeah, or on the street. Or on the street, on the bus, anywhere public, really. Yeah, anywhere public. Interesting. And do you have moments that you think can think about in the past of somebody that you walked by or saw on the subway that you wished you could get in touch with them? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I feel like it's pretty use. It's not, I don't know about useful. It's a little scary to me. But, like, I feel like it's a good concept for an app. I feel like now, that happens to, the, to all of us. Have you ever heard of something called Lost Connections? No. Okay, this is very, very old time. This is like old time like your parents and grandparents old time. Have you ever heard of something called The Village Voice? Uh, No. Okay. So there's a thing called The Village Voice. It currently exists as a website, and it's a website... You know, it's about New York. It started in the village. It's about local stuff, happenings, band playing, bands playing, articles, restaurants, all that kind of good stuff. And a long, long time ago, it used to be an actual newspaper that came out once a week on, I think it was Wednesdays. It's not still in print? I don't think so. That's crazy. I don't think so. 
I feel like it's just online now, but we can verify that. So anyway, it came out once a week on Wednesday, and it was famous for a lot of things. It was famous for the classified ads, where they had great listings for apartments. It was also famous for the personal ads for people looking for work and looking to make friends with other kinds of people, sometimes to do really specific things with specific types of people. It's kind of the precursor to Craigslist. Have you heard of Craigslist? Yes, I have heard of Craigslist. Okay. In the back page of the Village Voice, they had this thing called Lost Connections, and people would write into the newspaper, and then the newspaper would print it once a week, and it would be the exact moment that you're talking about. You're on the L train. You're sitting there. You look across, and you make this intense, awkward eye contact with a person, and you want to get in touch with them again, but you don't know how to find them. I actually so, have heard of this. I yeah, so people people would send in the letter and be like, on the L train on Monday morning at 10.30 a.m., you know, heading to Brooklyn, you had a blue backpack, you know, I had a Apple computer with graffiti stickers on it, you know, we looked at each other, you got off at Montrose Avenue, and that's how people would find each other from the, lo- from the Lost Connections. See, I feel like that's a little better than this app. This app seems a little too stalkery. It's not that... It's not as cool as as that. What makes it stalkery to you? Just the fact that you've got a the thing in your pocket that's like telling you the the name and like the picture of like pretty much anyone who you walk past. It just seems a little like a little too much. Well, but only if they want you to, right? It's yes, not it they, is only have, if people, they want you to. People have to choose to want to be on the app and want to register themselves and all that kind of stuff. Very true. Very true. Okay. Well, you know. Maybe do or don't download the app because if yeah, I mean I think you're right. I think there is a piece of the internet and technology and all these things where they are kind of stalkery and it is kind of creepy. Um, so you stay safe out there. I don't know. Is there an age minimum requirement that you have to be to be on it? I think all the dating apps are like eighteen plus, but that doesn't stop people most of the time. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, keep us posted and stay safe out there with your apps and your intense, awkward eye contact. (laughs) Will do. (laughs) Also with us today in studio is Derek. I'm going to say, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce your last name correctly. I'm going to say Denkla. Yeah, you got it. Denkla. Oh, so it's phonetic. Yeah, it's Dutch phonetic, you know. Okay. We'll have tulips and wooden shoes later. Derek is with us today um, because he is with a group called Slow Money, in addition to a lot of other really cool food and tech things, which we'll get into later. Um, but Derek, do you have a, an app that you're currently really using, one you just discovered, one you really like? Um, I guess the this isn't so new, but Slack has kind of changed my universe. It's uh, It's been really uh, ground-changing for me. Describe to the listeners what Slack is. Slack is kind of like the best of texting and emailing combined, and you use it for dialogues with specific groups of people within either your work or your play, Like, and it's very easy to segment it um, so that you keep dialogues really constrained to a particular topic. So, and it allows you to just quickly confer with people to get those those quick interchanges off of email. So it's like Email gets really clogged with weird, like one-off things, like yes and thank you. You know, like email should more be more like a letter now. Um, and when it's short, sharp things like that, you get it lost in a thread. Um, but this thing alerts you to when people are talking directly to you, and uh, it makes it just a lot easier to track really short, sharp, you know, sort of work-related things. Like yes, it's in folder X, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> that that on email it's like you you miss it and then like something tragic happens and they said i sent you an email i've noticed that it's very very popular in the startup and tech community um and that slack usually goes hand in hand with trello yeah it works well i think with those task management programs there's there are some um bridge programs that that hack them together we haven't had great experience with it. We tried to bridge it to Asana, and I feel like it's kind of you're losing some of the ex- the great sort of swiftness of Slack when you um, put it together with a more kind of deliberate, like, step-by-step thing like Trello or Asana. Asana and Trello can both do these things. They both have messaging components in them, but I find them to be... They're a little cumbersome, and you got to switch back and forth between windows. And uh, this, the immediacy of Slack, I think, is best kept pure. <laughs> best kept pure. 
Let's see how long that will last in the whole like digital smartphone because people always want to just add stuff and yep. hack it together and have it integrate and there are very few things that stay very simple. Right, like Twitter now is trying to go beyond 140 characters and I just think that's sad because it's Plus like, the photos. Yeah, so I thought, you know, okay, Instagram's cutting into your market share and you know, everybody else is cutting into your market share, but you know, stay true. Figure right. out a way to work, make it work. The very first app that I did when we started doing apps, and I will call it out again right now um, because I, I do love it and it is beautiful. It does one thing. It's called Is the L Train Fucked? <laughs> and it puts a little L Train icon onto your home screen. Uh -huh. And when you tap it, Is the L Train Fucked? Nope. And if it is, it says, Yep. And that's it. That's all it does. And it was designed by a art director, designer at an ad agency years ago. And he just pulls the open API from the MTA website, web source somewhere. And that's all it does. That's and I elegant. downloaded it um, back in January 2015 when TechBytes started because I started taking the L train regularly. Right. And my big fear is is getting getting stuck and having the L train not work. So there it is. It does one thing. It doesn't do anything else. Right. Genius. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. I wish I had had that because uh, I, I approached the studio just moments ago because the NR train was fucked. Yeah. Well, that's a different app. That's yeah, a different app. I'm serious. <laughs> it's a more complicated one. So, but we are glad that you're here, Derek, and that you managed to make it out to Bushwick, Brooklyn, in spite of the MTA. And he's here because he's going to talk to us about slow money and a bunch of other things um, like the food enterprise that's coming up. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this era, I think, in terms of just technology in general, the Internet we talk often about as being a platform that kind of made so many things democratic and open to the people. Giving your opinion, criticizing, complimenting, critiques, you know, all the platforms of Yelp and restaurant reviews and all of that, that sort of gave voice to the people. The blogging platforms, photography, you know, even Instagram and social media allowed people to become, anybody to become, you know, artistic and share their point of view and share their voice. What we recently started to see over the past couple of years is also the Internet creating a much more open democratic platform for fundraising, which mm -hmm. has become very critical and very interesting in the whole startup era. So now we have things like Kickstarter and CrowdRise and GoFundMe and text and tweet, you know, to give money to your favorite cause and charity. And it's made access to money just as easy as sending a tweet or a photo or sending an invitation and getting people to come to a party. So I think that's really fascinating. And it seems the fundraising opportunities have been developing and growing apace with the number of startups that we're seeing around the food tech space. So I definitely think one fuels the other and they, you know, the food tech startups give fundraising a reason to get involved and also a necessity. And it's this really interesting cycle that I think is, is feeding itself and, and growing and growing. So slow money is one of the very interesting fundraising platforms that I think is kind of sprung out of all the, the amalgamation of all these different movements. And it's kind of complicated, but we're going to, and complex, but we're going to see if we can sort of take it down to a very simple, um, explanation just to start off. So, Derek, if you could explain the idea of slow money to us, like you were explaining it to um, my aunt who lives in, you know, Hawaii. Nice. Well, I envy your aunt, for one thing. <laughs> um, slow money is really uh, both simple and complex, right? So, slow money is to fast money as slow food is to fast food. So, slow food reacted to the idea... Slow food was originated in Italy, um, reacting to a McDonald's that was imminently going to open in uh, Rome, uh, which um, Italians uh, reacted, Carlo Petrini, who formed the organization, reacted very negatively to the idea that fast food would enter into 
um, the Italian cultural culinary world, and their reaction was to come up with a, a, a reasoned objection to it, is that fast food was anathema to Italian culture, but not only to Italian culture, it was anathema to food in general. And they came up with a much more reasoned uh, approach. It wasn't just simply, we don't like Americans and their uh, hamburgers that may or may not be made out of things we understand. Uh, and they reacted by um, privileging the cultural um, monuments that they love, like through their arc of taste. And then they branched out even more to look at how the world was changing in terms of how uh, mass, um, you know, infiltration of American uh, salt, fat, sweet foods that were processed and lasted a long time and could go over great distances was impacting the world. And they started a conference called Terra Madre, which is Mother Earth in Italian, to explore how that impact was taking place. And they, what they found was that um, much of the food that was being produced was obscure in origin, not particularly good for the planet in terms of the process by which it was made, not particularly good for the person at the end of the chain who is eating it. You know, people in Samoa are overweight because they're eating American food, American Samoa. They're one of the most overweight people on the planet, right? So that's because their natural diet, which was based in a hunter-gatherer kind of fish and um, uh, uh, tropical fruits, uh, were, it was disrupted by the inc incursion of these strange processed foods from elsewhere. So it's um, bad for people and planet, and um, and it's culturally destructive in, in a variety of ways. So slow food poses an opposition to that, saying, let's honor these things that we care about. And there's been an explosive response to that. So I that mean, was back in 19, in the 1970s, correct? Correct. And so, so it, was is... an, it was a, a long time coming. I think it was actually, uh, my dates are not 100% secure. I think it might have been 80s, actually. But um, And Slow Food's been at it, really hacking away at um, this. At first, it was perceived as being an elite thing. And now, I think, um, as of 2014, Mintel, which is a big consumer survey service, um, identified that consumers are much more interested in local than they are in organic, which I think is a triumph of the slow food movement. I think you should be interested in both. But the notion of local food is 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 a very uh, is a is rejuvenated over the last um, twenty or thirty years as this movement gained force. So, um, out of a Terra Madre conference, there was a notion that you know how can we change this in a bigger scale way. Um, what is happening to the food system? Why is it this way? And a lot of it is, if you follow the money, as is often the case, it's motivated by greed, um, speed, and the desire to bleed people and planet of everything possible and as, as quickly as possible. Um, and the money that goes into the food system is drives the the cheap products that are can be last on, on the shelf for a long time that aren't good for you. And it's not, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. So, um, Woody Tash, who founded the movement through a book he wrote called Slow Money, who was an impact investor, and he was trying to figure out, ran an entity called Investor Circle, which is an angel network that's dedicated to uh, positive impact of investments. And he was exploring how money could be um, used in a way to alter the, the food system. And he became concerned when he started to explore it that the very nature of the way that people invest uh, the very expectations that they have create the food system that we have. It wasn't that the food system became the food system because people wanted the Dorito. The food system became that way because the investors in General Mills wanted a, a high-value product that stayed on the shelf for a long time and people couldn't stop eating. Because, you know, if, if people are addicted to cigarettes, they smoke more cigarettes. If they're addicted to salt, fat, sweet, you know, they eat more salt, fat, sweet. Whether or not it's good for them, who cares? We're making money. So he felt like the very nature of the way, it called it inquiries into the nature of slow money. Because that's our approach is that how do we change the way that money is invested in food so that food can be changed? And it led us to see that, that the very structure of investment, even in the context of making positive impact, is, is set up in a way that privileges very negative outcomes. And so we sought to explore through a lot of experiments, 46 different networks around the country and the world, actually. There's several out of the country, um, France, Switzerland, um, that are exploring different local experiments about how to fund things um, in the food system in a more personal and meaningful way with businesses that are um, taking a different set of risks about privileging quality and 
sustainable stewardship over the usual profiteering motive. So it's an effort to kind of recalibrate how money and food are interacting. So it is a really interesting idea today. It was practically scandalous, you know, 40, almost 50 years ago. But it's a conversation that I think, you know, if people are paying attention to the whole food, locavore, farmer's market, all those kinds of things, if you're interested in those types of subjects about your food, inevitably you get to the financing. Um, because at some point people do have to make a decision and vote with their dollars what mm-hmm. they want. Absolutely. Um, I often hear people complain about things from publications to media to books to film to food, and they say, well, I don't really like the way this publication or this grocery store is, you know, showing me their product. And I said, well, do you buy it? And they said, well, yes, I do. But, and I said, well, there's no, but as long as people continue to buy things, the manufacturers will continue to make them. So to Mm -hmm. your point, at some point there, you have to decide, I'm not going to buy this. I'm not going to spend my money here. I'm going to spend my money someplace else and then take into account what the value of that money is and the value of that product. And sometimes the product's value is beyond what's actually on your plate Mm -hmm. or in your grocery bag. And I think that's the piece that um, maybe people don't necessarily realize yet or are coming a little bit more to understanding. Because when you pay a premium for vegetables at the farmer's market versus what you would pay in an industrialized grocery store. You're not just getting people make a comparison of like, well, a dollar an apple or $5 an apple. What's the additional value beyond the apple that people are getting? Right. That's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of value. I mean, organic is an easy one in some ways because of its um, privileging, the use of um, production methods that don't use pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides that are the kind of poisons that most of us walk around at the end of our lives um, because of the industrial food system with with carcinogenic levels of of chemicals in our bodies because the foods are treated with these things. So even if we have incrementally small amounts that we absorb through eating a, a standard apple, over time that grows and creates all sorts of potential health problems that haven't adequately studied, but one can just guess that they're not good. So by paying more for organic, which consumers definitely want to do, um, and they often just don't have access to it, actually. You know, it's interesting. Walmart has see, seen, like, a huge uptick in organic produce buying amongst a population you wouldn't think was an organic shopper, right? That's the, the usual argument again. It's organic is it's elite, it's expensive. But people, if you're feeding your baby or even yourself, you think, you know, would I pay 20 cents more on a dollar for something that wouldn't poison me and my child? Of course. Um, and so the no the, one's going to ever say, oh, no, I want I want the poison. Right. G- give me well, more of the chemicals and the bad things. I really like them. Right. And like, I'll take the bad stuff. Give me extra bad stuff. So I think people have absorbed the idea that organic is is better for you and, and better for the planet is a little abstract for most people. So the local thing. Now, the thing that captures people with local is that it's better flavor. So I think that also captures people like people buy a lot of these processed foods because the flavor profile has been studied scientifically and it appeals to people's. Um, deprivations that you normally would have in a, in, a, in a wild situation. So we're in this tamed situation where, where salt, fat, and sweet are easily accessible. But in the wild, that's, those are really hard flavors to come by. And when you find something that fits that profile, you eat a lot of it because you don't know when you're going to see it again. Now we can get it all the time, so that's a problem. But, but people do respond to the fact that like, um, the things that have been mass-produced don't have a lot of flavor, like the, the traditional apples. Or you, you know, When right. I was a kid, the only options you had were Red Delicious. And maybe, if you're really lucky, Granny Smith was like the fanciest thing you could buy. Now people want more variety because they, um, they, they're bored of those, those things, and they don't taste that good, and they're not handled well. Um, same thing with lettuce. Like there was no such thing as mescaline when I went to the grocery store when I was a kid. It, it, that that adapted through farmers markets in in California, and they, people developed a taste for it. They had it there. They thought, why can't I eat this where I am? So flavor is the other way that people are captured, and flavor often really relates to health, oftentimes, which is kind of it's kind of the flip side of what I was saying before is that 
flavor as opposed to just those stimulus on your tongue. Like the things that stimulate your tongue, the salt, fat, sweet, like those things that, you know, um, those things, generally speaking, aren't good for you, right? Like in great quantities. But flavor usually corresponds to great health benefits because phytonutrients and a variety of other, the freshness of the food can be can be um, captured by, by flavor, which is mostly absorbed through your, the, your nose, which has all the taste receptors. So I think those are the things that people are really responding to, and they're really health-related. So we have a physical desire when we get the better, properly grown, organic, in-seasonal, probably local item we're willing to pay more for that because of all those really pleasing pleasant you know physical eating yummy sensations the result of that economically though is we then in turn support a local business local people and the money starts to circulate within our community versus the money going to support some giant international company where the money probably goes back to some industrial office park in you know south of france maybe because you know it's nestle actually owns it or something right like on, that yeah. and so the money and then the economy goes someplace else right so that's also one of the real benefits i think mm-hmm. of the whole slow money concept or paying more for your local things which is also a little bit abstract in, in one sense. Yeah, we're de- we deal in a lot of abstractions on the economic side. So the there's two things that I say to people that kind of get them to imagine about how change can occur. Because a lot of times people get daunted. Like when, when people started to talk about organic at first, they thought, oh, the, the market will never bear this. No one will pay this extra price. But it's the fastest growing food category. They just can't keep up with demand. Um, but what we say to people sometimes is, you know, what did Julius Caesar, Emily Dickinson, and Genghis Khan have in common? You know, and people are like, oh, I don't know. They're all old or dead. And we say they all <laughs> ate local organic food, right? So the the fact of the matter is that the, the 20th century has created, like, several really dramatic problems, like climate change. We invented the problem of waste. Like, there really there was no such thing as, like, garbage before the 20th century. Just everything was recycled and reused. And there was no such thing as non-organic, non-local food. So in some ways that's a triumph because it means that we'd be able to store a lot of caloric value so that people in difficult times who's harvests are destroyed can you know subsist on things that we create but it it creates an economic situation where there's there's no um there's no middle anymore there used to be a whole host of of small medium you know intermediate large huge makers you know there's there's a whole range of and over time those were consolidated just into huge global makers um, and so that differentiated marketplace is really good for, for local jobs. Every dollar you spend locally, they've done studies, you know, has like a $10 multiplier effect, right? Because it, that keeps circulating locally. So, yeah, there's a lot of huge benefits to, to buying local. Um, and there's the health benefits as well. And there's the planetary effects as well. So what, what we talk about is environmentalism is a little abstract. Like if I am saving the rainforest, which was like a big drive when I was in high school or, right. you know, that seemed really bold and, and really impressive, but I don't, I'd never been to the rainforest and I wasn't really sure what it did. And I had to read a lot of articles to hear that it was like producing oxygen for the world. It's the lungs of the world. And then it's confusing because then Massachusetts is now also the lungs of the world. And you, there's a lot of weighing that takes place. But Plus then, it's far. Yeah, it's far. So it's hard to understand. But if you see a farm and, and you're driving up the highway, it's just immediately inspiring, right? Like it, you, there's some part of us that just responds to open space and, and, and especially cultivated space. And we just think that seems great. And the more you can kind of key people into the people who work that land and how important it is for, for as a preservation strategy, which is a new thing that's come up now, is that preserving farmland and the products that come from it and the people who make products from it, um, is is a strategy for conservation as well, and 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 so there's a way that you can appeal to people locally where it's tactile and immediate, and 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 they can see it and they can taste it and they can meet the farmer. There's a way that 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 the slow money tries to appeal to that personal sense where you don't need a metric, you don't need to say, um, I need to see how your 20 year performance you know you know ratio is going to be for your internal rate of return, so that I can gauge whether or not the money that I'm putting at risk is worth it. You think. I've been eating this guy's cucumbers for three years. He needs a little bit more money because he wants to grow tomatoes. I think I'll lend him $10,000. So it's it's about the realness um, being real on both sides. And then it becomes very sides. simple. Yeah, it's, it, it can be very, very simple. It becomes very, very simple. Yeah. 
Um, and that's what we've tried to facilitate through our networking. So our platform is really a social platform for investors and entrepreneurs to meet and have these kind of discussions that are complicated and hard, but really interesting. Like, I love what you do. How can I support it? That's the investor side. Um, the entrepreneur is like, I love what I'm doing, and I need you know some assistance in terms of um, building my my brand, building my uh, capacity. I want to send my kids to college. How do I grow my business? So we've We've, it's gone from just a simple trying to f- facilitate transactions because we don't hold money. We're, we're a networking group that to talks about how we can do more transactions. We've held a series of meetings over time uh, that we call Food and Enterprise every year. And the summit is a, is a gathering of people to share ideas about how we can do better work together in this space, how, how the money can move in a, in a more responsible way. And we have an ethical focus this year with uh, an ethics expert kicking off the concert conf- conference. And um, I wish it was a concert too, actually. But And then we have like a, a global perspective from Carolyn Steele, who's a world expert on how cities develop to kind of draw all the products to them and kind of suck the areas around them in, you know, dry of resources. So we're trying to look at a big picture, small picture, and really bring people together to solve things in an incremental way. Well, in many ways, that sounds a lot like Heritage Radio Network, a platform to bring people together to have conversations and talk about things. And we are going to take a quick break to talk about who our sponsors and members are that make our Heritage Radio Network platform possible. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Well, if you've just joined us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes on the Heritage Radio Network, the weekly radio show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today, it's kind of like a low-tech, high-tech. We're talking about Slow Money NYC, and Slow Money is a really interesting um, solution slash experiment slash not-for-profit about ways to fund a lot of our local food businesses and ways to fund a lot of the local um, food tech startups. And the idea of taking money from your community, which is your money, and putting it back into your community, and the benefit of that to everybody is pretty basic and pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also something that I feel like is a little bit resonating in the news now when we talk about tech and third-party platforms Mm -hmm. because so much of the tech world is about creating second and third-party platforms as sort of clearinghouses and connectors Mm -hmm. for sales things companies that don't actually produce or make anything but they connect the maker and the buyer together Mm -hmm. and a perfect example of that which is a little bit in the news right now is seamless and Grubhub, which everyone knows are the restaurant delivery apps, and they basically connect consumers to restaurants. But right. one of the things that's coming to light now, it's something that we covered last year on this show, um, and there have been a bunch of different articles recently, is about the cost of doing business to the restaurants, mm-hmm. the producers, where yep. in fact, it's kind of detrimental to a lot of them. Right. Um, Seamless and the delivery services will take a commission off the top to connect the customer to the restaurant. And those commissions range from 125 to 25%, which is, in essence, the restaurant's profit. Right. So in many cases, the restaurant doesn't make any money or subsidizes the customer's delivery. Right. And then 
that 25% instead of going back into your community, going to your local restaurant, going to your local restaurant to pay the waiter and the vendors and the local businesses, it goes to seamless headquarters, right, right. which is not in your neighborhood. So it's also, you know, what you're talking about, the idea of slow money and supporting things locally and having the financial transactions stay in your community and sustain your community is something that I think is becoming even more and more relevant right. with technology. Well, we also want to, to, we feel like transactions need to be personal. You know, um, the, uh, something I didn't say in the earlier portion, but um, the things that are wrong with the food system are that it's opaque, hard to understand things that aren't good for you or the planet. And the same things are wrong with the financial system. The, the, the things that are created for the financial system, like the mortgage-backed securities that brought down the market in 07, 08, are um, hard to understand, opaque, and bad for people and planet. So the ways in which these things are broken are the same. And they're the same because the, the money drives the bad choices in how food is developed as a business. So what we're trying to do is change that. And what you described with Seamless is really interesting. Now, that's what we call the problem of intermediation, right? Like, if you put a middleman, that's sexist, obviously, it could be a woman, middle person. Most of the bad uh, things come from men. I think that's, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to accept that as a, as a male. I'll say that there's, uh, up to this point, uh, we, uh, we have to take responsibility for the, uh, the things that have been led by um, the male charge. But... Now, since things equal opportunities, we can all ruin the planet together. Absolutely. Um, so I would say that the intermediation is the problem, right? So you take the Uber problem or the seamless problem. So you have individual contractors, restaurants or drivers of a car. The sellers and, and the makers. And you get somebody who says, I'm going to accelerate your transaction, right? I'm going to speed up your money so that you can get more in, uh, um, transactions. Um, but as a result, I'm going to charge for those transactions. And so um, because there's a cost to me of running those transactions. And then I'm going to um, get bigger and bigger and bigger because more and more people want that speed of transaction. And then at some point, I'll turn around to you and say, I'm the big cheese now. You guys, were, I needed you before, but now you need me. And once you need me, then my bargaining power is such that I can dictate what your rates should be. And when I can dictate what your rates should be, I can squeeze you as hard as I want. Yep. So I can decide you're going to make nothing. I can decide you can make something. Now, what would be really stupid of these things and, and short-sighted, and this is what intermediaries do oftentimes because they're not thinking about the people behind any of the industries that they're creating unless government or unions stop them, frankly, or, or restaurant associations maybe, is um, they'll destroy the people who are providing them with their profit. So at some point they have to, there has to be a leeway, but they can push them as hard as they, if that restaurant's making 50 cents, they're still making 50 cents they weren't making before. That's Uber's logic or seamless right. logic. Um, but on the other hand, they're working so much harder and their life is completely different. Like if, I don't know if you know anybody who owns a restaurant, but they, re they really don't like seamless because they don't get into the no. restaurant industry because they like to like send a bunch of plastic tin things out over, uh, you know, on a bicycle. They, they want to interact with people. They want to see people enjoy their food. It's a lifestyle choice in a way. And what's sad is that that's something we all respond to as consumers. Like we want to be taken care of. We want to be served. We also want our fast seamless delivery. So there's a, there's a balancing act there, but I think that's, what's really problematic about these intermediaries. They may start with a good impulse of trying to like speed up the transactions and serve the restaurant industry, but they end up being the master of the restaurant industry or the master of the taxi industry and without any goodwill at all uh, towards the people that are underneath them. So we did an episode in September of last year on our delivery services bad for restaurants. And we had two small local restaurant owners come on and speak about their experience with delivery. And it basically boiled down to they did not make money with a Seamless and a Grubhub. They made 80% instead of 100%. And it was very disheartening and discouraging right. to them. And from the consumer side... You know, I'm all for convenience. I love to pay a little extra to save some time because my time is valuable to me and I have lots of things that I want to do. But the consumer has a misconception that they're supporting their local business if they're ordering from the restaurant down the street 
via seamless. Right. And it's very hard for the consumer to know, though. And that, you know, you know, like, for instance, I got into an Uber recently and got into a conversation with a driver about whether he and he said he hated and he said I should use Lyft. But then I've heard I'm, that as well, that right. the commissions are higher for drivers on Lyft. Right. And so and then he been, mentioned another service that was available. But then the consumer wants one place to go. We were talking about apps earlier. Like I was reticent to give up my reliance on Uber even though I knew that it might be a bad actor because I'd mastered that app. I felt it become reliable to me. It become something that I enjoyed using. And the same is true with Seamless. So it's really hard to get people to, to adapt their behavior and then have them readapt their behavior. So um, that's why the first comers are so aggressive in the tech space about trying to get their raise as much money as possible to market as quickly as possible. Get their because, hooks into people. Right. Because once you get stuck with one app, like once you, those are two apps I use a lot. Um, someone can even like me who knows that, that that's not fair. A lot of them are fair. Will be reticent to change um, because it's the the adaptive behavior is really hard. Change is hard. It's, we don't like hard. to learn. So once new you've things. made one change, it's hard to make. Is it going to be any good? Is it going to work? I have to put my credit card in. You know, there's right. a leap of faith to it. Also, if it's not been vetted and tested, right. And and that's a really challenging thing about. Um, all of these things that tech brings in terms of disruption, which which allow for greater market share, like a, there's a bigger market share now for taxi services and for restaurants, right? But who gets the? How does that get sliced up, and how is that fair? And the you know the marketplace may be bigger and faster, but it's it's worse a lot of times for the people at the bottom, and really good for the intermediaries. So we uh, we are completely running out of time, and I'm sad about that because I think I could do an entire weeks of episode with you, and we could be talking about all these things. I want to try and um, loop it all together um, very quickly and say the idea of slow money is very much parallel to the idea of slow food, where mm -hmm. if you take things to a very personal, local level where you buy your food, who you buy your food from, how you prepare it. If it's really easy and simple and you could, you know, balance your checkbook on the back of a piece of paper and you can cook the recipe and say all the ingredients, these are the kinds of things that people want to have and aspire to. And all of these movements are kind of bringing us back to that. Right. In many ways, technology and the internet has allowed us to do that better. We can find people. We can connect with them. It gives small businesses tools to find people and be bigger and find funding from people who believe in their product and their idea. Slow money is also a part of Food Enterprise, which is foodandenterprise.com, which is going to be an event in Brooklyn on April 8th to 9th. Mm -hmm. Um, this year, 2016. And that is an extension also of the slow money work with Food Stand Spotlight, mm -hmm. which is also a food tech environment where bringing together people who are working in this space to have our money, our food, and our technology in our lives kind of all go in the same direction. And if we can all have the conversations around the places that are making the technology, that would be helpful. And the food stand spotlight is an interesting one because it has um, businesses come and they do a stand up and they talk about mm -hmm. what their business is developing and slow money and you um, invest in a lot of different companies. One of the things that I always look for, which is very much in the seamless and Uber, is this startup actually making something? Yep. Is it making something? Is it creating something? Is it creating a product? Or is it simply a marketplace connecting right. one to the other? And if it's simply just a marketplace or a platform, at some point, somebody gets the squeeze. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think that it's... Um Anytime you're taking a big risk when you're making stuff, it can go bad. Um, the inputs price can go up. There's all sorts of uh, eccentricities to making stuff. And that's why tech investments are so attractive because they're, they're not really making stuff. They're making a program and they have to, they have to market it. But it's basically the budget for a tech startup is the salary of the people and the marketing budget to get it out to the consumer. So it's, for an investor, it's, it's awesome because you're always trying to manage risk. So you've just taken away most of the risks of that are related to industrial development. Like, you know, 
if I'm making something of steel, is the steel going to be delivered on time? How long is it going to take to get the thing that I make to market? You know, you, when it when you have a tech business, a lot of the eccentricities and risks that um, that are problematic in terms of an investment that have to be controlled through a lot of really intensive experience and management, you can throw it all out. Um, the problem with it is it may not be really creating real value, like we were saying about Uber. Like it's expanding the marketplace and it's making value for the Uber investors and for Uber, but it's actually hurting the other people. So it's actually creating a lot of social negatives or social loss of value. So there are impacts that, that are hard to tell. And so we're always trying to look at things from those perspectives about, you know, what are the overall impacts? That's, that's the nature of impact investment. Um, that this and this business is making and will my investment make and but the great part I agree with you about some of these tech tools is it does allow for everyone to see themselves as an investor in food not just a consumer at the end of the process you can uh, make a loan through Kiva Zip or a, uh, a grant through Kickstarter or uh, a loan through LendingTree or um, you can now do um, Circle Up uh, allows you to place equity uh, with businesses. And now there'll be more and more crowdfunding sites now that the Jobs Act has uh, had regulations issued. So there's a lot of more areas for participation, and it's very exciting. But it's always good to um, remind people that the best way to vet an investment is to meet the person you're investing in. And as we say in food, 50% of your investment should be gauged within 18 inches of your mouth, right? So the look, the smell, the taste of the thing is, is, a, is a majority of what you're buying as an investment. So typically at the end of each show, I ask my guest for a piece of actionable advice for our listeners. And you kind of you jumped right into it. I don't even have to ask you. Those are great pieces of advice of how to look at potential investments, whether it be giving somebody $5 on a Kickstarter or giving somebody $5,000, you know, to maybe ha help a farmer add a crop to their summer vegetable lineup. Um, we are extremely out of time, um, but I want to thank Derek from Slow Money NYC for coming out to talk to us about all these things. There's so much here to talk about. I encourage you to go to slowmoneynyc.com if you want to learn org. more. I'm sorry, .org, 501c3 nonprofit. Also, go to foodandenterprise.com for the April event if you're interested in this kind of thing. And Derek has a lot of really interesting investing projects, uh, community projects, personal projects in addition to slow money. So I would encourage people to look at his website, um, D-E-N-C-K-L-A.com, for all of his projects, which are really kind of fascinating. If you want to listen to more conversations about these things... Check out the Tech Bytes page on heritageradionetwork.org. We have some great episodes with Rachna Giovanni, the founder of Food Stand. We have Danielle Gould, the founder of Food and Tech Connect. Oh, we have a great friends. episode on Kickstarter. And we have a great episode on Seamless um, from September last year. So we're out of time now, but we have more time later next week, Monday at 1 o'clock. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. This is Tech Bytes. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.